Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Before we dive into the show, I just want to add some late-breaking news that was finalized after we recorded today's show. The Postmortem Podcast is going out not with a whimper, but a bang. Dread, Beyond Fest, and the American Cinematheque will be hosting our final show at the historic Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and you can be there in our live audience. Many of the postmortem guests will be there on stage and in the audience on Saturday, December 9th. We'll follow the live show with a screening of Stephen King's Sleepwalkers for an unforgettable night. Tickets are available at the American Cinematheque's website, so I look forward to seeing you there. And now, on with the show. From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything, and asking your questions of me on your behalf is producer Joe Russo. And good morning, Joe. How are you? I have a feeling it's not going to be so fun size today. No, we have a lot of questions to get through and not not every, anything close to being the full mailbag, but we're going to do as many as we can because, Mick, this is the final Ask Mick Anything. Yeah, we still have a couple more shows. We're going out with a bang. I won't tell everybody what kind of a bang yet, but it's a, it's a pretty spectacular finale. Um, but as far as our AMAs go... This is the last opportunity to ask. It's the last opportunity, but it's also the first opportunity we've had to talk about the fact that postmortem is coming to an end since we've announced it because uh, you've been quite busy. And we've been chock-a-block with with guests rather than AMAs. We had our our annual uh, Halloween plethora of guests uh, and and you were traveling and yeah, Yeah. so it's good, good to catch up with you again. Likewise. Yeah. So this will be fun. And I have a feeling it's going to kick off with a morbid opening. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Mick, the question I've been getting from everyone when they hear that the show is ending is, are you dying? (laughs) Well, we all are, are we not? In a way. Uh, But no, I'm in excellent health. It's just that after seven years, with 180 interviews, I feel like it's mission accomplished. I think after seven years, wrapping it up with the group of people that we've been able to talk to in every level of filmmaking has been so fulfilling and so rewarding. I don't want that to fade out. I I, I want it to end with a bang and all seven years will continue to be available to anyone who's interested uh, in our in our archives. So we've got, you know, 180 interviews and a ton of AMAs that will always be out there and conversations with the best and brightest within our genre. I think it's, it's safe to say that we put together probably one of the most impressive collection of interviews available, at least in the horror podcasting space. Um, Right. There is, and it will continue to live on that way and, and probably be unrivaled for some time to come. Uh, and, and yeah, I think 
you have earned your podcast retirement, my friend. Uh <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were holding out for winning a rondo. And we got the Rondo Award this year for best podcast. That's true. And, we were, and we we're always a bridesmaid, never a bride until this year. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a our valid a valedictory lap. Yeah. Yes, best podcast of the year. Might as well go out on top. Uh well, <laughs> shall we get into these questions? Well, I also want to say I'm busy, you know, this has always oh. been a sideline for me. You know, my main focus is as a writer and a producer and director. And I have projects in the works now that the that the um strikes have been concluded. Uh, to be able to ride out the avalanche of projects that everybody's throwing at the studios and networks now, and to be able to pursue these things full time is also going to be something that's going to take more of a commitment than ever before. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you and I have, have done a balancing act with our movie and TV careers uh, while doing this show. And it will be nice to dedicate our full efforts to those things again. Um, exactly. Yep. Um, well, show you, you want to do some of these questions? Cause we got a lot. Let's go to the next one. All right. Now that my death has been settled. Yeah, that's right. Uh, first from friend of the podcast, Dave Scout, uh, assuming Mick is not a narcotics courier, what's the deal with all the foreign travel? Do they pay his way just so he can be a horror ambassador of sorts? I can't imagine Mick is picking up all those flight tabs and hotel bills just to talk about critters. Although Zeus knows that would be incredibly lucrative. <laughs> what does Mick see as his international role as such? And how did he come to it? Well, it is very strange to have become without any attempt, a sort of international ambassador of horror, <laughs> but I am unbelievably grateful and humbled to be invited by these festivals all around the world. They do uh, pay my fare. They bring me over and often they will show movies or television shows that I've made, um, do Q and A's, do master classes, things like this all around the world. And it's an unbelievably generous opportunity for me to be able to see the world and to go to these places and realize that I have done work that is appreciated on an international level. And it's always surprising to me when I get one of these invitations and I try to, to take as many of them as I can, um, just because the more you travel, the more expansive your world becomes, and uh, literally and metaphorically. So um, it's it's just been a great deal of fortune that I've had to be invited by these amazing collections of people who love genre cinema. And in a way, because my attitude towards our genre is so positive and encouraging as evidenced by what we try and do on the podcast every week, um, it seems to have met with appreciation from the directors of these uh, festivals around the world and, and in town. You know, I've been lucky enough to be invited to moderate conversations for Beyond Fest at the American Cinematheque, yep. like the spectacular Roger Corman panel that we did. So it's something that, uh, you know, I've, I've been an interviewer since I was in high school, and that's been another facet of what I do. And it has led to me being invited to participate in these fantastic events. 
you know, one of the only international things I was ever invited to was right before the pandemic. I got uh, an invite to be to get my honorary PhD from a university in England. Uh, wow! Except they had the wrong Joe Russo. Uh, <laughs> Gee, that never happens. That never happens. But you know, we really, really thought, wouldn't it be funny if we took a camera over and made a documentary about me accepting an honorary doctorate? from the school that thought I was the other Joe Russo. Uh, but the They'd pandemic, have loved that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the pandemic sadly squashed that, uh, that dream. Uh, Damn. And, yeah, and I ended up forwarding it to him and doing the right thing. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I digress. Um, it must be nice to be able to travel the world on uh, – on other people's dimes. <laughs> um, it, it is pretty great. And to be invited to places I would not have thought of going to on my yeah. own. And see, I mean, I just came back from trips to Norway and to Finland. And, you know, it's it's just such a, a great experience. And, and I uh, am grateful every day. I said it on uh, Twitter, but every time you brought up Helsinki, I kept thinking of that great Philip Seymour Hoffman monologue from... Uh, uh, that Sorkin movie. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, the Tom Hanks. Um, but anyway, he was, it's, it's, it's a great monologue about Helsinki. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Moving on. Bryant writes, I'd be fascinated to know what Mick thought of the quote unquote new Beatles song, both as a fan of the band and from an AI as a tool standpoint. I thought it was great. I mean, you can't be my age, you can't have been in a band and not have been influenced by the Beatles in an enormous way, not just the way people are influenced by bands today. If people don't recognize how unique the Beatles were and how vast their influence was socially as well as far as, far as pop culture goes, just their music, they they went way beyond that. They influenced everything in society in in a way um it is an amazing video to see them brought together as they were that could only be done with ai and just the filmmaking techniques that that uh, peter jackson brought into this beautiful project truthfully i was in tears i mean it just rips at your heart to see something that played such an important part of your life when you are becoming a human being, you know, when I was in junior high school, when I first heard the Beatles and I grew up with them in becoming an adult and they became an important part of my life from that very beginning. And, yeah. and they changed my life and everybody else's life. I knew. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And, and in my opinion, how AI should be used as a tool, um, Every tool has its good and bad uses. And, yes. and this was a fantastic way to reconnect four personalities, two of whom have been dead for years, and to be able to do it with beauty and respect and inspiration. Yeah, yeah. That's what we want from artificial intelligence, not <laughs> a cranked out Marvel movie. Um, okay. Uh, Neil asks, sticking on the Beatles subject for a second, he's got a, a, a two-parter because it's, you know, our last AMA. He asks, Nick, being a huge Beatles fan, do you have any plans to visit Liverpool in the future? And for me, Joe, any chance you could persuade Mick 
for a guest appearance to sit in the makeup chair and be a monster in one of your films in the future. Uh, so, Mick, do you want to take uh, the Beatles first? I'll take the Beatles first because I have been to Liverpool. Hey. And I've been to the Cavern Club. And, yeah, I, I uh, made my journey to genuflect at their feet. And uh, it, it was thrilling to do that. But I did that in, in 1980. And uh, actually, no, I did it in 76, my first trip to England. I made the trek to Liverpool to see where ground zero was. And it was filled with inspiration and, and excitement. As far as uh, sitting in the chair, go ahead, take it, Joe. I mean, I would, I, I'm always looking to uh, pay homage to Mick in things. Um, <laughs> most recently, um, you know, I have a movie that's coming called Soulmates that I wrote. Uh, and in that movie, there's a high stakes karaoke scene. And uh, we were desperately trying to get Don't Dream It's Over. Uh, specifically as an homage to Mick uh -huh. um, and, and the standard. So absolutely, I would love to, if Mick would, would uh, you know, accommodate, uh, I would, I would absolutely <laughs> put Mick in, in, in a, as in his a monster and something in the future. I would happily undergo the process for my friend, producer Joe, as long as it was not as extensive as the makeup I did on Michael Jackson's thriller. I mean, you'd hope in the 43 years there'd be some advancements, but uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could uh, we could do it digitally. But yeah, I had so much fun doing that. I am a bit claustrophobic and getting a face cast and all that stuff was not the most fun in the world. And it was three hours in the makeup chair. However, they did replicate that makeup at a festival uh, in Mexico City. That's where... right. That's right. Landis was there. And as a surprise, they made me up as my thriller zombie. And I introduced Landis and and a video, a drive-in theater screening of a new version of Thriller that had new elements cut into it with the head of the festival, Pablo, made up as a Michael Jackson monster that they would cut back and forth. <laughs> was the makeup process any faster or smoother than well, I didn't need my face cast, which helped. Uh, it probably took a couple hours, um, at least. It was a three-hour job on Thriller, but this yeah. was a couple hours. But it was a pretty good, pretty good uh, recreation. Look, the the great thing about Mick is if you stick him in as a cameo, you can't miss him. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't. I can't. So many people tweeted at us when the stand came out, the remake of the stand came out uh, and they found you at the barbecue. So, <laughs> and if you blink, you miss me. I'm in there sure. for like three seconds at the, well, they didn't miss you. <laughs> it's those, it's those long locks. Yeah. So. All right. You, you'll know I'm retiring if I ever cut it off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luis writes, I've always wanted to ask a question and finally had the courage. Mick, when are you going to direct another feature? And Joe, are we ever going to get Blu-rays of the Beyond the Dark series and the Up Hair Nightmare? And can you guys send a shout out to my boys, Aiden and Jacob Camacho? They are 14 and nine years old and just started to love the horror genre. Aiden and Jacob, welcome to the dark side. Yeah, I think you're going to have a great time with it. Um, 
I'm hoping to direct another feature. I have projects in the works right now. Right now, um, two of them are television oriented. One of them is uh, a feature that I wrote and am producing, but I don't want to direct. Um, it's uh, an African-American story that I think would be best directed by someone uh, from the inside rather than from the outside. Um, but I, uh, I've written a two-hour pilot and nine-story uh, episode outlines for a series that is based on a story by Stephen King. And then Clive Barker and I, as we've talked about, have written a pilot together that was originally for Shudder, but that didn't work out. So now, again, now that the uh, the strikes have ended, um, the all three of these projects will be rekindled and reactivated. That's pretty awesome. And you know uh, which story novel of yours I hope you will adapt and direct at some point. Would that uh, be Salome, perhaps? That would be Salome. <laughs> Not a horror novel, by the way. No, no. Hollywood I... Desert Noir Murder Mystery. Oh, oh be still my heart. Uh, <laughs> um, to, to answer the second part of the question quickly, uh, Beyond the Dark was, I think, always designed to just be a uh, streaming digital release. I licensed a short film to that called Midnight Clear. Um, and I don't really have much information with what they're going to do with that other than, you know, they put it on shutter uh, outside of that. And uh, and then the Up Air Nightmare, I mean, they don't, I don't think they typically put TV movies on video anymore, uh, which, is, which is a bummer. But, you know, technically it's owned by... Uh, you know, our one of our nightmare cinema producers, Nancy Leopardi. So I imagine if some uh, you know, enterprising uh, you know, DVD release company wanted to reach out and broker a deal, there's probably money to be made. So Ride that wave of fandom. I yes. guess. I guess. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, you know, to be determined, I guess, on both would be the the sad answer. Uh but <laughs> Very exciting for Aiden and Jacob to uh, start exploring horror. And uh, they've got plenty of podcast episodes to go back and listen to. That's right. <laughs> um, Kieran writes... Let us be your Alexandria library. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, next question. Kieran writes, Mick, were you aware or consulted on the aspect ratio for the home video release of The Shining? And how do you feel about it being released overseas and 16 by nine and not four by three. Well, what's interesting was the stand came out in 1994 where there was no such thing as HD. The shining was 97. We shot it in 35 millimeter film. We knew HD was coming and had actually already arrived, but ABC was not yet doing it. So we shot it in the one eight five aspect ratio. Um, but protected it for four by three television, the television standard at that time, which was, you know, four by three, as opposed to one eight five to one. Mm -hmm. So um, we knew that there would be a version that would be the, or uh, actually it's one seven seven to one is the widescreen ratio of, of modern television. So we protected for that and we protected for four by three, but we always wanted it to look like a movie rather than a TV show. So I was involved in the transfer 
um, with the, the director of photography, Shelley Johnson. We always intended for there to be a theatrical format for this because of shooting it on 35 and because it was right during the birth of HD. We wanted it to be able to adapt to HD when it became commonplace. Well, there you have it. He was involved. So, yeah. all right. Uh, Simon writes, hello, Mick and Joe. My question is, will there be a Nightmare Cinema 2 in the future? I love this anthology and can't wait for the second film. Well, I think I speak for Joe and myself as being really proud of that movie. We made a, a movie that we could be excited about at a budget that was less expensive than anything I've ever worked on. And <laughs> it turned out great. The And it did really well on Shudder. The problem is it's really difficult to make a profit on an independent film. Mm -hmm. And especially this kind of independent film where the theatrical release was token at best, just so they could get a decent uh, video deal. And then the video deal was not a particularly good one. It was very small time release on Blu-ray. So it had its biggest audience on Shudder. And Shudder has had anthology movies premiere on their channel that have had um, sequels made. At this point, it doesn't look likely. Um, I would love for there to be one, uh, but it's the question about whether there will be more of something that you are happy you made is a complicated one. Like people talk about, oh, I hate that there wasn't a Masters of Horror season three. Can't we have one? Look, I would rather, and I, we've talked about this before, I'd rather celebrate the fact that we made Nightmare Cinema and that it came out great than bemoan the fact that there isn't a Nightmare Cinema 2. I don't yeah. rule out the possibility of Nightmare Cinema 2 happening, but the likelihood of it at this point in time is, is minimal. So let's celebrate the things that we've made that we can be proud of and not mourn the things that uh, may or may not be wonderful in their wake. Very well said. I will, I will just add as well, um, like, Tales from the Crypt, like Masters of Horror, uh, Nightmare Cinema has a web of rights entanglements uh, yes. that also might make it financially untenable uh, to produce a sequel, which has, I think, been probably the biggest thing standing in its way um, the last couple of years uh, and probably will continue to be. Um, but yeah, there's a know, lot of producers. <laughs> there's a lot of producers. But um, that doesn't mean that uh, now that Mick and I have more time on our hands, that we couldn't explore a new anthology. Uh, yes, yeah. and we could definitely, just like for various reasons, including producer relationships and the like, I would not want to make more Masters of Horror. I do want to make more horror anthologies. And the project that Clive and I are working on, he created 10 all original new stories for this uh, anthology idea that, that we're putting out there. Um, and it's really exciting and it would all be done in the UK if it's done the way it was intended. But um, I love anthology. It doesn't have to be the same format every time out. That's absolutely right. So uh, we'll see, I guess is the, the, the answer. Um, yeah. 
unlikely uh, this, but we'll see yeah this is uh this is a quick one addressed at me that we can knock off very quickly um clay writes producer joe has a voice that sounds remarkably like ben wits legal journalist senior fellow at the brookings institute and regular co-host of the bulwark podcast with charlie sykes sometimes it's uncanny is there any chance they are the same person have you ever seen them in the room together uh <laughs> I listened to uh, an episode of the podcast. I, I didn't hear it, but uh, <laughs> um, we are not the same person. Uh, <laughs> well, that put that one to bed. Yep, that is that is the answer. <laughs> I'm sorry to break it to you. I, I do not have a uh, secret identity. Uh, but the Bulwark is a good podcast, and Charlie Sykes is fascinating. I don't. I'm not as familiar with the other. Uh, yes, I, I was not either, uh, but I do not think it sounds like me, but hey, if you, well, time to get into politics, Joe, I guess, well, uh, oh, yeah, nothing like 2024 to start. That's our new podcast, Mick, Mick and Joe do <laughs> your <politics>. new podcast, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> All right. Randall writes, uh, before the show ends, I have to ask once again about Mick's comparison between Stephen King and Clive Barker. I believe Mick said Stephen King writes about ordinary people in extraordinary situations, and Clive Barker writes about extraordinary people in extraordinary situations. Is that about right? Well, it's it's kind of, but the main thing is that Stephen King sets his stories in a world we all live in and is very relatable and then just nudges it into the supernatural. But it's a supernatural set in a very real and relatable world. And Barker creates magical worlds where he makes it feel real. So they approach it from opposite directions, but both of them with a sense of verisimilitude that that feels genuine, that the humanity of both writers is massive. And Clive's characters, although set in a world like Imagica or or any of the more fantastic, the damnation game, that enter into really fantastical worlds, they're still grounded in human emotion. So they come at them from totally opposite directions, but uh, meet in the middle when it comes to characters and, and humanity. And just as a curiosity, because I don't think there's a lot of people who have adapted both Stephen King and Clive Barker stories. Yeah, uh, probably none but me. No, I can't. I, can't off the, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody else. Do you think that emotionality where they, they do intersect is where you intersect too? I, I would like to think so. You know, for me, character definitely comes first. If If I'm writing... And uh, I get to a point where I'm having difficulty with where it's going. Basically, I just write characters and they will find the story. Um, but that humanity, you know, ideas, unique ideas that both of them have in very rich senses still rotate around the sun of of character. And that's something that that I found as a reader fascinating in the work of both of them and discovered them each separately and appreciated them for their own values. And as an adapter, you not only have to have a sense of character and story yourself, but you have to be sort of a chameleon and take on the characteristics of, 
the the artist who created the work that you're adapting. So I think that's definitely a part of it. And and being such a fan of the books, wanting to pay due respect to what made the books wonderful in the first place. So I'm involved, uh, you know, because I'm writing or directing something based on somebody else's material, you can't help but put your own personality into it. But it's got to be in service of the original work that made it something people wanted to adapt to film or television in the first place. There you have it. Um, <clears throat> switching gears, a couple uh, industry and craft questions. Uh-huh. Uh, Mario asks, gents, I'm curious how non-disclosure agreements work. When an actor goes on the talk show circuit or press chunk, it's are they briefed and or given a script with talking points about what they can or cannot say? And what are the sanctions for loose lips? Can you use one of your past movies as an example of what tea should and shouldn't be spilled? Well, I've never signed an NDA in my life. Um, and actors think for themselves to give an actor, especially a successful actor, talking points and walking them through what they should or shouldn't say is a minefield. Um, but, uh, you know, Joe, I think you have more experience with NDAs than I do, but they basically, it's a non-disclosure agreement where you sign it agreeing not to spill the beans, not to tell what you've discussed in these meetings, what the movie is about. However, I don't think those are used very often in publicity purposes for yeah. when a movie comes out. It's really during the course of discussions and production. My uh, experience with NDAs has only been bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they only benefit one side. That's absolutely correct. And they're usually used to hide bad behavior. Um, I had to sign one of them on one of my produced movies and um it absolutely was to cover up uh some some bad behavior which i'm still not allowed to talk about and um, i can imagine what movie that was mhm i'm sure um it's not hard to figure out uh but but um you know that that that's all i can really say about that uh on another movie of mine other people were forced to sign ndas uh, to prevent them from talking to me about some bad behavior that the producers were trying to carry out um, oh, because they were afraid I was going to go to the writer's guild and report them, uh, which I would have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they were right to, to try and, you know, I think uh, put out, put out that fire, but they obviously they were doing it to cover up, um, you know, behavior that was unethical and against my agreements and contract with them. So um, I, again, never had good experiences with NDAs. And and like we kind of famously heard is, you know, during the Me Too movement and in the wake of that, they've only really ever been used to cover up the misdeeds and bad behaviors of upper echelon producers and executives and CEOs. Now, sometimes they are used to protect the secrecy of a project that's going out there. And that is a valid use for them because you can upend a production or a project and make it not happen if word comes out prematurely 
or in the wrong sense. So that's an understandable use. But again, I've never had that experience, but that is one purpose for non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, I feel like that would be really more with like Marvel movies or Star Wars movies or things. Right, where they are more common. Yes, yes. I think in that sense, they would probably dictate the publicity matters a little bit more so than say um, the the inner workings of an actual production, uh, which is where I've experienced them. So yeah, when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars at stake and secrets are important, then that's when a non DA comes in and and has its most value. Yes. Uh, all right. Moving on to uh, another industry topic. Rob writes, given the sheer amount of amazing literary horror out there uh, that is now long out of copyright and in the public domain, why aren't we seeing more of these getting developed? Given the propensity for built-in fan bases that seems to allay risk-taking fears and execs, it should be the ultimate existing IP in the horror space, but this doesn't seem to be the case. Why? Well, for something to be out of copyright, copyright lasts 75 years. Mm -hmm. So for something to be out of copyright, it had to have been created more than 75 years ago. Horror in the eyes of Hollywood and most producers in the game is very contemporary. It's very much youth oriented. It's, it's very much about younger characters. It's rarely about period pieces. So a good idea 80 years ago may not necessarily transcend. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff that's out of copyright. Things like H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe and the like. And those things have been made uh, ad infinitum. So I think just the idea of so much of that material by must needs is old. Um, it's less likely to find a home. And a lot of those ideas that were great 90, 100 years ago have been superseded by contemporary ideas and built upon and improved upon or uh, elaborated upon over decades and decades and decades. So I think that's probably the main reason that you don't see older material embraced in that way. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think there's something that's uh, kind of missing to the, the this argument, which is executives are only looking for IP, and, and that's not necessarily the case. They're looking for IP that has a fan base. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and if something is that old and it is not still predominantly in the culture like, say, Lovecraft is – it's very hard to argue that you should adapt it just on IP's sake alone, right? Uh, right. And and in the case of somebody like H.P. Lovecraft, he is his own genre, was <laughs> his own genre. Nobody else was creating the sorts of things he was. And his contemporaries like Arthur Machen and the like um, uh, came up with brilliant ideas, but are not necessarily adaptable for our contemporary world of, of filmmaking, which is as we know the studio genre films are primarily aimed at teenagers and college age people yeah when i was still an executive um there was one project at uh, the company i was working at um which was based on a larry niven sci-fi novel called ring world um mm -hmm. which still is very much in copyright but you know had been exploited by so many other 
science fiction works, um, Star Wars and Halo, et cetera, et cetera, um, that the IP just really didn't feel fresh anymore. And, you know, we constantly get really, really exciting uh, directors and writers who, who wanted to take stabs at it. Um, but no one could really find their way in because ultimately at the end of the day, it, it had just been strip mined for parts by so many other things that had come <laughs> since that there really wasn't a way to get the, the you know, whether it was sci-fi or Amazon, whoever had it, they've all had it at different points, uh, excited about it. Um, but I do think if you can find a way into old material, uh, I don't think anyone was clamoring for a new Invisible Man movie, right? But Lee Wanell yeah. found a really special new take uh, that revitalized an old property. Yeah, um, and you know, there, there there's Renfield. They're making Dracula movies all the time. They're making Frankenstein movies still. You know, Birth Rebirth is not officially a Frankenstein remake, but it wouldn't exist if there weren't Frankenstein. Um, exactly. And uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there are variations on a theme, body body replacement and and things like that. And those are themes that continue, but um, they've been modernized and made much more contemporary and and complicated, more complex because we are so familiar with them. But there are germs of great ideas that can be amplified upon. Exactly. Exactly. All right. A couple craft questions. Uh, Rob writes, hello, Mick and Joe. I would love to hello, hear Rob. the ever so eloquent Mr. Garris explain oh. a couple industry terms I keep hearing and don't quite understand. Blocking and set piece are often talked about, but I would like to hear them explained and elaborated on to death. My layman's brain will appreciate the <laughs> lesson. Well, let's start with set piece. It just means something that stands alone as a really exciting, you know, it's an action piece. It's a central piece that is not a dialogue scene. It, it, it's something that makes you go, wow. Mm -hmm. It's something that can stand on its own, uh, own in, in a trailer or uh, a clip on YouTube. You watch this, that set piece is a piece of machinery that works fantastically well in a movie. Yeah. And a horror, so, horror movie, it would be all the scares, right? Yeah. Yeah. A set piece is something that you plan elaborately to stand out from the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So blocking is how you arrange the scene to be shot, where the actors go, what door they come through, when they come together to do an over the shoulder standing up or sitting down how you figure out the geography and and the choreography of how a scene plays. It's the actors working within their environment and how they use that environment to better and more clearly and more emotionally potently play out the scene. So, you know, just as an example, there's a scene in the Shining miniseries that it's eight pages long and it's a dialogue scene between Rebecca de Mornay and Stephen Weber. She comes down the stairs in a very seductive mode and he's obsessed with the history of the Overlook Hotel. It's nighttime, there's a fire burning. Uh, there's blue moonlight coming through the picture windows. So how you orchestrate that, it's first, she comes down the stairs, she's at the foot of the stairs 
he's already in the room. They're at opposite ends of the room. When you bring them together, eventually they come and sit on a sofa facing one another, but it's manipulated in such a way that he is illuminated by the cold moonlight that's coming in from behind Rebecca. She is illuminated by the warm light coming from the fireplace. So you have this extremely important color spectrum and heat spectrum that feeds into the story being told. And it's where you put them when you bring them, you sit them close together, but you give them a distance by how they are lit and by the moods you're trying to create. And then when they come apart afterwards, you know, all of that is a bit of a dance that needs to be choreographed. And that was an example where there's no action at all. There's just dialogue communication and non-spoken nonverbal communication between these two characters who are in the middle of a very, very complicated rift in their relationship and how you orchestrate that and play that. That's a, blocking. Yeah. I think it's a great anecdote. And it's actually one that you uh, uh, imparted to me right before I went off and directed the opera nightmare. So uh, ah, glad, okay. I'm glad you got to share it with everyone else because um, it's a great, great example of it. Um, <clears throat> all right. Chris wants to know, making Joe, how do you approach breaking a story? Well, you know, people use terms like breaking a story and all that. Uh, to me, it's just writing, yeah. you know, um, a lot of people work it out with beats. They talk about, you know, every 10 pages, something has to happen or, you know, a, a, a character, uh, and his arc and where it has to happen in the story and all that. I think those are things that have been created by screenwriting schools that more than anything are are attended by studio executives so that there are rules to follow. When I don't believe in those rules, I have never in my career of some decades sat down and tried to break a story in that way. I'll start at page one and work my way through. Sometimes there will be an outline. If you're working on assignment for a studio, you have to do an outline. You have to do a beat by beat what's going to happen before you embark on writing the screenplay. But if I'm writing on my own, um, it's it's something that you learn just through loving movies, watching movies, book, reading books. It's It's storytelling that hopefully becomes something that's innate to you as a storyteller. Um, but a lot of people put a lot of work into how rules matter and certain elements have to be followed in order to, to create the formula of writing a screenplay. And that's a very valid way to approach it, but I, I, I've never followed that. I think it's also a valid way to write a, uh, boring screenplay uh <laughs> <laughs> well i don't disagree um well it's how I, to know, write a screenplay funny. like I, every I, other screenplay yeah so. exactly i mean it's they're 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 training wheels i think of it as um you know yeah, well put. i think one of the reason i like working with partners uh on on screenplays is i'm a big believer in talking the movie out uh hmm. i like talking about the characters and the themes and the ideas and like basically what we would call blue skying, uh, brainstorming. Um, right. 
until I have a really clear picture of what the movie is and then start laying it out on paper. Um, you know, there's a, a, a project I've been working on for the last several months. Um, and, you know, before we started writing it, there was, you know, there were, there were phases where we were turning documents into the producers outlines and treatments and such, but kind of in the, you know, precursor to that, there was, you know, several weeks of just talking through what the movie could be, what we wanted it to feel like, what movies we were trying to capture, you know, how we could do it, how we could make it our own. Um, I think all of those things have to happen for me uh, to be able to actually determine if there's a movie there. You well, know? that's breaking a story. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's And that's so, so once I have those things in place, it, it becomes very easy and clear to, to put it down on paper. The, the, you know, but for me, sometimes I talk through these ideas and I go, wow, maybe there wasn't actually a movie there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I find that that generative process uh, to be helpful because by the time I put it through its paces by bouncing it back and forth for, for however many weeks we do, um, I usually have a pretty good sense of whether or not it's worth investing another, you know, two to six months into the screenplay. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's how I do it. But I, yeah, Mick and I kind of come at it from different ways, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, it's just, it's finding the things that you're passionate about exploring. Right. Yeah. And, and when I'm writing on my own, I, I don't care about what time it takes and, you know, if I'm rewriting or changing something or going, oh, here's an idea and I can go back and do it. I don't have anybody else uh, that I have to share that with. And I just like starting on page one, walking the tightrope without a neck. Yeah, I do not do that. But <laughs> <laughs> I admire those who are brave enough to do it. I, I, uh, I, I, again, through my kind of you know, talking it out process. I have a good sense of where the movie is going before I start writing. And, you know, I think along, I try not to flesh it out. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, because I still want those sparks of inspiration to come in the the connective tissue. Oh, the discovery that happens when your intuition feeds the process is thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where you get the good stuff. So, um, yeah. So, so, you know, everyone's got their own process and I think Mick and I have very different ones, but you know, at the end of the day, we both will end up with a 90 to a hundred page document. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. That nobody's going to buy. No, no <laughs> that's not always true. Just no, sometimes. no, no. But the <laughs> fact is as much as you want it to happen and, and can help it to become realized you have to realize that there's a really good possibility that nobody's going to buy it and not think of it as a waste of time, but the opportunity to practice your craft and get better and to do it again yep. and have another sample of what you can do. Exactly. Every script you learn something and every script yeah. worth writing. Uh, so, okay. Last question, Mick. Okay. The last question of the last Ask Mick Anything. Tim writes, with the show ending, it seemed the perfect opportunity to ask. I was curious to know exactly how and when you both first crossed paths and why Mick decided to bring Joe along for the postmortem adventure. 
<laughs> what qualities made you want to collaborate with each other? What do you feel both connects you as film professionals and fans of cinema and the horror genre? What have you learned from one another? Your fondness and mutual respect for one another is very obvious and has been a strong foundation for your consistently engaging discussions. Well, thank you for the very, very kind and generous words. Really appreciate that. It kind of worked in reverse. I mean, Joe and I first met when he was a studio executive for a production company, and we had a general meeting and hit it off there. And we had Harris. a couple of David those. David Harris was the person who connected us. Yes, David Harris put us together. And uh, we are forever grateful. He also helped work us toward the Nightmare Cinema. That's right. Yep. Getting made. Yeah, and he's an associate producer on that movie. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, um, but what happened was, and maybe Joe should tell it, but I'll start it, is Joe was at a party. Yep. And uh, one of the executives from Podcast One, which is the biggest podcast company in the world, was there. And they talked about the idea. I had done Postmortem as a TV series mm -hmm. for uh, FearNet or Peter Block. And we'd done 10 of the episodes with people like William Friedkin, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Wes Craven. And the idea was there. And it was Joe's idea to pitch it as a podcast. I, I had never thought of doing that, but um, they were very receptive. And then we met with the owner of the company, Norm Pattis, the who has since been deceased, but he was the owner of Westwood One, which is the biggest uh, radio syndication company at that time. He sold it off for a fortune and started Podcast One instead. So Joe, you want to take it from there? Yeah, I mean, you and I were uh, already in uh, development. I think we were doing our deal uh, for to to get Nightmare Cinema into production uh, yeah. by by this point. So we were already working together uh, when the postmortem opportunity presented itself. It's 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 kind of crazy. I mean, we started the podcast. The first podcast launched maybe a month before we started shooting Nightmare Cinema. I mean, yeah, it was, was it that it was, close? Wow, it was a busy couple weeks boy I was, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and i also that was i and it was it was we started the podcast in january 2017 i had shot that crypt tv valentine's day short and we started production on nightmare cinema at the end of february it was like wow. the wildest eight weeks ever um <laughs> but uh but you know we that was how it came together was 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 that mick said i i just off the cut pitched it to this um podcast executive I, f I felt like i'd had enough people pitch me movie ideas that had <laughs> enough karma bank to pitch a podcast and uh you know and mixed right they, they bought it hook line and sinker i think that process started in september 2016 and the show was up and running by january 2017 it was all yeah. fast well um, what was amazing about it was i thought we were going to be pitching them a show and norm pattis was pitching us on his company yeah yeah. And, you know, they had people like um, Adam Carolla and telling me things like, you know, Adam Carolla gets seven and a half million dollars a year from his podcast, as if I were going to benefit from it. <laughs> the first I think, year. I think, yeah, I think they hoped the horror community uh, was had a bigger podcast reach than it than it ultimately did. Yeah, but I, I made that 
one year, we, 10 months that we were with Podcast One, I made $500 total. Yeah, it was. It was um, yeah. So you don't do podcasting out of the love of it. But, you know, we've yeah. had four four different uh, homes, starting yeah. with Podcast One. Then we had Fangoria. We had Blumhouse. And then the last couple of years with Dread Central. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, no, I think, I think Sean Merrick, uh, who from Podcast One, we owe a, a great deal of gratitude because he really helped establish the uh, sound and format of the show. Um, yeah, it was interesting because they have these really fancy studios in Beverly Hills, and that's yeah. where we did our show all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I think over the years it's, it's evolved and, uh, when we moved over to Frank Fangoria and, and Chris Price took over the engineering, he helped us kind of become more nimble on our feet. Uh, and, and we were able to keep the show going, I think, because we were able to produce it at much cheaper than podcast one. Uh, yeah. I mean, at Blumhouse, we did it in their, their uh, conference room, yeah. conference room. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. led to problems occasionally. Yeah. When Jason would walk in and be like, what the fuck's going on? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember a Steven Weber interview being cut short because Jason was commandeering the conference room for a meeting. Yeah. yeah. Well, luckily we had Steven back on. Uh, so, yes. you know, we, we made it up to him, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, the show's evolved over the years and, and I've, I've been very grateful that, uh, yeah, and that's right. Uh, and we, and we survived COVID, uh, you know, yeah. we, we were nimble on our feet and pivoted to zoom and, and uh, Joe and I love movies and yeah. you know, that is evident and being able to talk two ways uh, about movies and not, particularly the AMAs, Joe, is such an important ingredient in that regard. And we've we've come to have great conversations back and forth about this. And and I've watched Joe's career amplify, you know, as as kind of a beginner in having success in getting movies uh, optioned and then made. You know, it's been exciting to watch him. I, I kind of feel like the uh, the tutor in a way <laughs> well, but you but you have been i mean you've been there every step of the way every time i've, I've needed advice uh mix always been a text or a phone call away and and has helped me through some some sticky situations and and helped me through uh just some really creatively rewarding ones and and i'm i'm forever grateful for uh nightmare cinema and postmortem allowing us to become friends and and giving me those those amazing opportunities to pick his brain yeah, well, it's been it's been quite the run. We're not done yet. We've got nope. a couple more to go, and uh, we have a bit of an extravaganza that we'll be going out on, but uh, we can't talk about it yet. Yes, hopefully very soon. Uh, you'll all learn about it. Um, maybe earmark December 9th if you're in the LA area. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll be bringing the show home with some fireworks so yeah and we've got uh at least one more terrific guest hopefully if everything works out with the schedule we have two more uh real great headline guests we'll uh we will see what happens but whatever the case the one we have in the can is a wonderful interview that all our fans are going to be very excited for so exactly. uh mick thank you so much for doing the show and doing the show with me and allowing me to become part of it uh, joe thank you for doing such a great job and kicking it off in the first place getting it going it was uh my pleasure and 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 something i i really truly am uh incredibly proud of so uh yeah, forgive me the sin of pride in joining you and 
even more importantly, thank you for an audience that allowed us to continue this. I don't want this to sound like the last show because it's not. It's just the last AMA. Yeah. But to allow us seven years of conversations that I've learned from every single one of them. You know, we've gotten insights from people that you'd never get anywhere else from people who mean a lot to pe to the audience in the horror genre. And uh, it's just been an amazing list of guests that I don't think anybody could supersede. Well, Nick, I think uh, all that's left to say is onward and upward with the arts. And thank you to Christopher Leon Price. And, and John Holland and Jeff Gelb and John Jasinski, all, all, all the people we have in our credits. And Bill Bernie. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, we got a, a core group of really important people for this show. And most importantly, the audience who's hung in there year after year. Mick, thank you. And that has been Ask Mick Anything. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.